You ever, you ever get insomnia where you're kind of flipping through the TV channels and you're kind of watching some of the weird stuff that's on TV? Maybe, maybe rather than that, maybe you go on the internet and you ever see those articles like, where are they now? Where maybe you look at maybe like, a, like an actor you used to enjoy and you're like, they used to be always in the spotlight and now they're gone. Like, where are they now? Or maybe it's a musician. I was never really into the musician or, or the uh, actor, but I was into athletes. And so one of the athletes that I remember very clearly is in the mid-2000s. I am that old. In the mid-2000s, there was a a player by the name of Adam Adam Morrison who played for Gonzaga. And he's the one that caused me to become a Gonzaga basketball fan. Now, Adam Morrison was this guy. In, In 2006, he averaged over 28 points per game, which is quite a lot. He led Gonzaga to uh, the NCAA tournament to the Sweet 16 where they suffered a a heartbreaking loss against UCLA. And uh, that moment cemented me as being a Gonzaga fan. This guy had all the potential in the world. In fact, he was drafted as the number three draft pick in the NBA the following year because he had so much potential. And his his rookie season, he, he played, he had a promising rookie season. Until the next year, he injured his knee. And the injury caused him to be out of of basketball for over a year. And when he came back, he kind of, he didn't have that pep in his step. He missed some of the the bounce. And his career kind of went from this, all this promise, and it just kind of started going down. He became a, a player that played very sparingly. And after another two or three years, he was no longer in the NBA he is often labeled as a bust. Somebody that had this, all this potential, was a high draft pick, was going to go and do all these great things, and he never achieves it. Currently, Adam Morrison lives outside of Spokane, and uh, he's one of the radio commentators for Gonzaga basketball. But isn't that kind of a familiar story? We hear these stories of people that start great. They have all this potential, but they don't quite finish out very well. They never reach their full potential, or perhaps they end up in disaster. In fact, uh, I remember I've run two half marathons in my life. Why? I got a little crazy. That's why. That's just the excuse. Uh, Well, the first half marathon, I'm training for it, and I'm like, I can get this time. This is my goal. I can make this time. And so I've trained for it. I'm ready for it. I get to the starting line. And there's all this energy around me. There, there's people there lined up to cheer people on. I've got my running partner that I will really want to beat. And so I get to this, ener- this starting line. I've got all this energy. And they say, go. And I just, I take off way too fast. I take off because I'm like, I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. And so I'm, I'm running like crazy. And, and I started out way too fast. And by the time I got to mile like 8, 9, 10, I am dying. I'm just dying. I'm trying to get through it. I'm like, my, 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 my pace just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping because I went out way too fast. And I, and I barely crossed the finish line. I did achieve that goal by like 12 seconds. It wasn't a great finish. But it was one of those things where I'm, I'm reminded it's not necessarily how you start, it's how you finish. Like, just think about this. Like, how many of us can think about maybe a friend Maybe a family member, someone that we knew who once loved God. They were on fire for God. They were serving God. They were, they were so dedicated, but then it seems like they just kind of drifted away. And you look at their life now, and they're like, they're not living for God at all. You can't even tell that they once followed him. And you kind of look at that story, and you're like, what happened? 
Like, like how did this happen? How this person that was on fire for God, how do they end up so far away from him? I mean, I can think clearly to my life. Clearly, there's, there's, there's two close friends. Guys who loved God, who were serving God. And they ended up walking out on their families, walking out on the church, walking out on, on God. And almost you look at their stories and you're like, man, it seemed out of nowhere. Like they were, things were so good. But then I kind of talked to the guys and I'm like, what's going on? And, and it really, people don't just fall away from God. It's a process. And for these guys, they had a number of little compromises, little sins that they had tolerated until eventually those little compromises boxed out their love and their dedication for God so that they would not finish the race. They would not achieve the goal. And I don't know about you, but I think about those stories. And I don't want us to think, well, I'm better than those guys. I would never do that because this could happen to any of us. And so the question I want to wrestle with us today is, is how do we not do that? How do, how do we finish the race well? How do we remain dedicated and finish our faith and our life? And how do we finish the race strong? This past couple of months, we've been in a, uh, a series that we're calling The Story, where we're trying to grasp the major Bible stories, the major uh, characters, the major commands in the Scripture, Old and New Testament, to see how they point to one bigger story. They're not these little individual things. They're one bigger story that are all pointing us to Jesus. And to kind of recap where we've been, uh, we saw that God was, made this promise to Abraham that he said, hey, I'm going to bless all the world through your family. Your family's going to become a great nation. And we've been in this process of looking at the Old Testament of how God is bringing that to fulfillment. There's partial fulfillment, where God has allowed Abraham's ancestors to become the nation of Israel, and God is, is blessing them. And uh, then we saw last week, we saw David became king over Israel. And David was a guy who wasn't perfect, but his life and his heart were aligned to the heart of God. And because of that, God honored David. God blessed David in his leadership and led Israel to a season of, of peace and prosperity, something they haven't had before. God even, because David's heart was aligned to him, God even made this promise to David. And he said, I promise you that your throne will be established forever. Your throne, that's a pretty good promise to a king. Well, as what usually happens, David eventually dies, and his son Solomon becomes the new king. And, and Solomon comes in, and this is a great time for Israel. This is maybe the golden era for the nation of Israel, for power and wealth and influence under the reigns of King David and King Solomon. Solomon is starting out well, and he's a very good leader. He, he, he sought diplomatic, uh, he, brought dip, he brought prosperity to the nation by being a diplomatic leader to be able to figure out how to do trade with other nations and, and improve their status in uh, the, the known world. Uh, Solomon built that magnificent temple in Jerusalem, the place that was going to house uh, the presence of God. And Solomon also had these two amazing spiritual highs where, where Solomon actually got to, to meet with God. And I'm not talking about meeting a God, like, you know, when you come to church and you get the fuzzies and I'm like, oh, I met with God. No, David actually, or Solomon actually got to, to be in the presence of God, to hear his voice, I guess pretty cool for Solomon. And there was one point where God says, Solomon, what do you want? Ask for whatever you want. And Solomon says, I want wisdom. And Solomon became renowned in the world for his wisdom, the wisest man on the earth. 
Now, when you read the story of Solomon, you can read through the first 11 chapters of, first 10 chapters of 1 Kings. And you read this and you're like, Solomon is great. He's got this great glory. He is successful. He's got wisdom. He's got devotion to God. But then we read the text that Jake read for us this morning, 1 Kings chapter 11. And it's like disaster, right? It said, uh, it said that Solomon, when he was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to God as, his heart, as the heart of his father was. Verse 6, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And verse 9, it says, The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. I don't know about you, but I look at Solomon. I'm like, I don't want to end up like that. I don't want to flame out of my faith. I want to be faithful to the end. And so what I want to do this morning is because I think Solomon can be like many of us, where maybe we've got some good things going for us. We're successful. We've done this or that. But I want to ask this question, how can we prevent us to, to flame out? And so we're going to look at the story of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, and kind of look at some of his story to say what went wrong. What are the things that went wrong in Solomon's life, and what are the things that we should watch out for in our own life? So simply, we're going to look at three things that brought Solomon down. Number one, the first thing that brought Solomon down was he had an incomplete faith and trust in God. In fact, this is what it said in verse 1. It said, Solomon had married many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Verse 2, he married them from the nations which the Lord had commanded the people of Israel, do not enter into marriage with them, and neither they with you, for surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. Yet Solomon clung to these in love. And verse 3, it says, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Now, I just got to look at that and be like, Solomon had a thousand wives. Like, I'm not a smart guy. But I know that's disaster. Like, I'm not like Solomon. Come on, bro. But, you know, when we read about the story of Solomon, sometimes we think Solomon, we think, well, he had all those wives because he was a sex addict. He just, you know, he, he had a, a thing for exotic women. But it's not really the case. It's, it's deeper than that. You see, in those days, a king would want to marry another king's daughter. He want to marry another king's daughter because what would happen is if I'm a king and I marry your daughter and your daughter's my wife, chances are you're not going to come and attack me. Chances are you're not going to come and, and try and kill my household and take over my kingdom because I've got your daughter as my wife. It was a thing of security. It was diplomacy. It was more about security than it was about sex. But here's the thing. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God had explicitly told the nation of Israel, do not do this. Do not take other wives. You do not need security from these treaties with other nations. God's saying, I'm your security. I'm the one you trust. You trust in me, and I will protect you. But Solomon, again, I would say Solomon is like many of us, where sometimes we're not really satisfied with the promises of God. We're not satisfied with what God says to us. We don't trust God fully. We need maybe a little extra insurance. Or maybe we think, well, I know God wants to take care of me, but maybe God needs my help. 
God wants to take care of me. He needs my help, so I'll marry these foreign women so that way their, their, their kings, their dads don't come and attack me. See, the core problem is unbelief. The core problem is that Solomon did not fully trust God to be his security and to take care of him. Now, I remember, I remember when I was a teenager, I used to go, I got into rock climbing. And I used to love rock climbing. And my favorite part about rock climbing was actually climbing up the cliff. Because climbing up the cliff, you, you've got a rope attached to you, but the rope is, is just there for security. And, and here's why I loved climbing up, because when I'm climbing up, I'm going to use my hands, I'm going to use my feet, I'm going to use my head, my tongue, anything I can to attach myself to the rock. And so as I'm climbing, if I can have three points of contact on the rock, like, I feel pretty good, I'm going to climb up. And there's that security because I'm doing this. Look, I know I'm not going to fall because my hands are on the rock. And so I used to, to love climbing up because, man, I could do this and I could accomplish it. And it was through my strength. And the rope was there in case I fell and it was good to have that security. But really, I was taking a lot of confidence in myself. Well, then I climb up and they're like, now you need to climb back down. You need to repel. I'm like, okay. And as I started trying to climb down, I did the reverse of what I did to climb up. I'm holding on with my hands and feet, and I'm trying to step down and, 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 and climb down. And the guy's like, what are you doing? That's not the way to do it. You're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. And I'm like, well, no, I, I just, I'm doing this because this makes me feel more secure. He said, yeah, here's the thing with repelling. Repelling, you have to lean back and put your full weight on the rope. The way you go down the mountain, the way you repel is you lean back, and you essentially walk down the mountain, walk down the cliff, you put your full weight on the rope. The rope's not there for security. The rope is there for everything. You know, isn't that kind of what life is like? God's kind of holding the rope. God's saying, I got you. I'm going to take care of you. You can trust me. You can put your confidence in me. But what do we do? <sighs> Hold on to the rock. I can't let go. I can't let go of this rock. Sure, God, I know if I let go, you'll got me, but I can't let go. I'm going to do what I can in my own strength because we don't fully trust God. God, can you really handle my weight? God, can you really take care of me? And here we are, afraid to let go. Listen, you will never fully press, you'll never press into full obedience until you learn to trust God with the full weight of your life. This was Solomon's problem. Sure, God, I know you're there for my safety and security, but I'm not going to let go of the rock. I'm going to hold on, which shows he wasn't fully surrendered to God. And how many of us are living in the same way? So let me ask you this morning. Where do you need, where do you need to trust God enough to let go? To give him the full weight of your life, to say, all right, God, I'm in. Second thing that brought Solomon down is he had some disobedient friends. I mean, look what it said in verse 1. It says, Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 2, he clung to these women. And verse 3, his wives turned his heart away. See, Solomon surrounded himself. His closest friends, his closest relationships were people who didn't love God people who ended up turning his heart away from God. And what I, what I find so ironic is Solomon, towards the end of, a life, end of his life, 
As he's writing the Proverbs, he says in Proverbs 13, he says, He who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. And what did Solomon do? He surrounded himself with fools, which led to his destruction. This is why when we read Scripture, uh, Scripture says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, oftentimes, we say that reverse refers to marriage, and I think that's true. You should not marry someone who doesn't love Jesus, who doesn't have a relationship with him. But I think this goes into beyond just marriage. It goes into our, our closest relationships, the people that, that are influencing us the most. Solomon had these unbelieving wives who led him away. This is real life, folks. This is real life. In fact, when I, was in, when I was in youth ministry, I used to tell kids, I used to say, hey, your friends are so significant. You show me your five closest friends because you're going to become the average of those five. I used to say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Because the people that we surround ourselves with, man, they, they influence us. And as we wrestle through some stuff and we're like, man, I don't know what I'm doing here. And they're not telling you, hey, you need to trust God and, and, and let go of the rock and trust God to hold your weight. No, they're saying, well, yeah, you need to go and take care of this yourself. You need to do this and that. This is what happened to Solomon. And I know some of you are going to object and say, well, no, 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 pastor. I know, I know some, some of my Christian friends and they, they were maybe married to an unbeliever or they had their closest friends that were unbelievers and, you know, God worked it out. God worked it out. And that's true. There are times that that happens. God's grace is amazing. But do we honestly think that we can outright to say, God, I'm going to reject what you said to do. I'm going to do things my own way. That yet then expect God to clean up the mess when things fall apart. See, we do this and we think, okay, God, I know you said do not be unequally yoked, but I really want to do it my way. And God, I know you'll take care of it. You know what that is? That's mocking God. And I'm pretty sure scripture says God will not be mocked. Solomon was brought down from his disobedient friends that he allowed closest in his life. Don't hear me wrong. That doesn't mean we should not be friends with people who are far away from God. We should be. But the question is, who are your closest influences? Who are the people that you allow to speak into your life? Who are the people that you are asking advice from? Are they people that are going to finish their race, race well? Third thing that brought Solomon down was a result of slow, small, subtle compromises. I mean, the story of Solomon, we read about Solomon and we're like, look at all his success. All this good stuff that Solomon did. He was a great king. He brought uh, such greatness to the nation of Israel. He, he built the temple. He, he met with God. We're like, Solomon, you're so great. And then you read 1 Kings 11, you're like, it's almost out of nowhere. It's like it's so sudden. But here's the thing. That wasn't the case for Solomon. It's not the case for Solomon or our friends and family who fall away from God. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm done with God. I'm not going to live for him anymore. We don't walk away unprovoked. No, we're brought down slowly over a process started with many little small, subtle compromises. 
In fact, flip your Bible backwards to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Solomon made uh, a marriage allegiance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he finished his own house and the house of the Lord. See, this is the beginning of Solomon's reign. This is the beginning of his life. What did he do? He took a small step of a compromise. He did exactly what God said don't do. Don't take wives from these other nations. And what does he do? He takes a wife from the other nation. And again, I put myself in Solomon's shoes and I'm like, I can justify it. It's not a big deal. It's just, it's just a small thing. I mean, it isn't, everybody else is doing it. It doesn't seem so bad. It's not like I'm saying, I don't love you, God. It's not like I'm rejecting God completely. But imagine this. Imagine, again, because it's 80 degrees in this room, imagine if I'm like, hey, let's go get on an airplane and let's fly down to, to Florida. Let's go down to the Florida, Key, Florida Keys. Let's go find some sharks. Let's go visit the mouse. Let's go to Florida together. Okay, so we get in the airplane and we take off. But I turn the direction of the plane just a single degree. We're headed this way. This is Florida, but I just turn just a little bit. I first make that decision. You don't, nobody notices. Seems like we're headed in the right direction. We're headed that way. Maybe we get an hour into the flight and we're like, hey, I, you know, I think we should be over Utah right now. I don't think we're there. I don't know where we are, but, you know, it'll probably work out. And then five hours later, we end up in New York City and we're like, wait, this is not Florida. This is not our destination. We're nowhere near where we wanted to be. That's the story of Solomon. Where he made this small, subtle compromise that turned his direction just a little bit. And as he continued moving in that direction, continued to take him farther and farther from where he needed to be. In fact, 1 Kings, 11 verse, uh, 1 Kings 3 verse 3 it says, Solomon loved the Lord by walking and statutes as his father David had. But listen to this, but he also sacrificed and burned incense in high places. Oh, he loved God. He never rejected God. But he also loved these other things. His heart was divided. I mean, sure, he lived a good life. Sure, he got the knowledge. Sure, he built some wealth. Sure, he does some things for God. But his heart was divided the entire time. And it leads to chapter 11, where those subtle compromises that he continued to make turned his heart away from God, slowly, slowly burning out his passion and dedication and faithfulness. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this. He describes small sins and compromises. He describes them as cancer growing in the background never stops growing until it's eaten away all of our desire for God. You know, I think about those stories of people that I know and I love who were on fire for God and who did not finish the race. You know, how true is this? There's little, subtle, small compromises. It's okay, God. You know, it's okay if I do this once. No one's going to care. Well, that leads to another and another and another. And pretty soon, our heart is no longer dedicated to the Lord because we've allowed all these other things in. Result of that, result of Solomon's compromises, 1 Kings 11, back in our text, verse 11, it says, The Lord said to Solomon, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, 
I'm not going to do it in your days. I'm going to tear the kingdom out from the hand of your son. Verse 13, I'm going to tear, I'm not going to tear away the entire kingdom. I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of David and a promise I'd made from him. I see this right here. This is the beginning of the fall of the nation of Israel. In chapter 12, we're going to see that the nation is divided. Uh, you've got the, 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 the northern kingdom, which is what Solomon's servant took over. Ten tribes that followed the servant. And because God loved David and because God was going to keep his promise to David, he left one tribe, the tribe of Judah, that belonged to Solomon's son, remained in his lineage and in his family line. See, I think about the story and I'm like, man, it's easy for us to hold our heads up high and say, well, that'll never happen to me. That'll never happen to me. You know, I bet when Solomon started, he said, this will never happen to me. Look at the example I had in David. My father, he was a man after God's own heart. Of course I'm going to be faithful to God. You see, if we're going to people, if we're going to be people who don't just start out strong, but we're going to be people who finish well, I think it is good and right for us to consider people like Solomon and to learn from the story about what went wrong in their lives so we can learn from that. And this is where I am thankful for the Bible. You know, sometimes we think about the Bible and we're like, oh, I don't know if I can trust it. Here's why I love the Bible. Because Solomon is a great king. But what does Scripture do? It records his successes as well as his failures. It doesn't paint him as being this perfect guy. It shows his major failures that led to the kingdom being taken from his, his family. And this story teaches us. Here's our, our summary for this message. Is it a small, subtle compromises that lead to our hearts turning away from God? I mean, there may, be, there may be some of us that are like, hey, I'm getting ready to make a huge major decision that's going to turn me away from God. But I'm going to guess, you don't make that decision on its own. My guess is there's a bunch of little things that fueled you to get to the point that you're going to make that large decision. So in light of this, in light of us looking at Solomon's story to see how he fell, what brought him down, I want to look and just say there's a couple things that we should be able to do from this. Things that we can take and say, how do we finish our race well? Number one, we've got to have the courage to trust God fully. You see, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe a year ago, I really started clinging to John 10.10. John 10.10, Jesus says, I came to give you life, and I came to give you life abundantly. Jesus saying, I came to give you everything. Love, joy, peace, security. I came to give you all of that. The reason I'm clinging to that is because oftentimes I think, hey, if I'm going to have love, joy, peace, and security and all those things, it's because I make good decisions. It's because I work hard. It's because of my own strength, my own accomplishments. I mean, isn't this why we allow little compromises? Isn't this why we allow things to fester? Because we don't actually believe what God just said. We don't believe that Jesus said, I came to give you life abundant. Well, no, I have to go and find life abundant on my own. We don't trust God enough. Or we think, well, what if, what if God doesn't deliver? What if God doesn't deliver the way I want him to deliver? What if God doesn't do it in my own timing? God, I don't really want to wait for you. I just want everything right here, right now. 
And so literally, we live our life like me in the rock wall. God's the rope saying, I got you, but we're holding on for dear life. I can't let go, God. I can't trust you. I got to try and do it on my own. Meanwhile, we're missing out on all that God would give to us. This doesn't mean that we don't trust God. Oh, there's some love for God genuinely. But to an extent, we trust him, but we still want control, right? I mean, parents, we do this with our kids. Oh, I trust that God has my kids. I trust that God will look after them. But what if he doesn't? So we become helicopter parents? We think, hey, if I'm going to raise my kids and they're going to love Jesus, I've got to do all the right decisions. I've got to do everything just right. Man, I've given up on doing everything just right years ago. I'm just, God, would you just bless this? Because I don't know what I'm doing as a dad. I'm trying to do my best. God, would you bless it? We do this with money. God instructs us to live generously. And then we think about that. We're like, well, okay, God, but what happens if I can't pay my bills? God, if I live generously, uh, what about, what am I for retirement? What about my desire to go and, and have a good life at the end of my life? God, if I trust you to live generously, how am I going to buy all my toys and all the things we want to do as a family? This happens when we are wronged. Somebody wrongs us and we're like, okay, God, I know you said I'm supposed to forgive them. But God, if I forgive them, God, who's going who's gonna to hold them accountable? God, if I forgive them, won't they take advantage of me again? And we cling to the rock, nursing bitterness because we don't trust that God will actually take care of us. This happens when life throws us a curveball. We get these curveballs in life, something unexpected. We lose a job, we, we don't make the team. Uh, we have an unexpected medical diagnosis, and, and that curveball comes, and we're like, God, God, you don't have a plan for me. God, God, you don't, God, I don't think you've got me. And so we take the wife, we take the weight of our life back onto ourselves. These small compromises, these little insignificant sins, over time they grow like cancer. So we think, well, well, who cares if I don't take time to, to read my Bible today? It's okay. Who cares if I don't take time to pray? God knows I love him anyways. Who cares? Who cares if I skip church a few times? Like, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, who cares if it's just a few bad words? It's not like I'm doing anything bad. It's just a few bad words. Who cares, God, if I, if I numb my pain and my stress with alcohol or eating or lust? You know, God, it's just, I'm in a really hard time right now, and I need that to, to get me through what I'm dealing with. And you see all these little small compromises, all these little small things, they build like a snowball. It starts small and it builds and builds and builds. And pretty soon we've forgotten the word of God altogether. Pretty soon we haven't been in church in months or years because we made that little decision to skip once or twice. Pretty soon we have a mouth of a sailor. And pretty soon our life shows that we have very little evidence that we have a relationship with God himself. See, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. He was talking about money, but I think this applies to every area of our life. You're either serving Jesus or you're not. So I'm asking you this morning, this is why I'm asking you to take courage, to have some courage here. Courage to let go of the wall. Courage to let go of the cliff. To lean back and put your full weight 
and trust in God? Where do you have courage to let go? Courage to confess those compromises. Courage to say, I'm not going to just keep minimizing these little sins. Courage to trust that God is worthy. Trust that God is in control, that God is able, that God is working things out for your good and for his glory. In fact, I want to ask you today, have the courage, not just to say that was a really good message that spoke to me, but have the courage right now to name your compromises. To, to, to name your little, small sins. Because so often it's like, well, yeah, that's good. I totally get it. No, actually put a name on it. Yeah, God, I have a hard time trusting you with my kids. Yeah, God, I'm holding on to my money and, and clasping it because I'm afraid to trust you with it. Name it. Put a name on it. Because if we don't, those things continue to fester and they grow like cancer. Number two, if we're going to finish the race well, we've got to put the right people in our lives. Listen to this. Probably the single most important factor in your life, the single most important factor, whether you finish your race faithful to the end, is the people that you surround yourself with. Listen, you cannot underestimate how significant this is. We all need this. We need people to look out for us. We need people to hold us accountable. We need people to warn us and say, hey, man, I see you making these little compromises. I love you enough to say stop doing that because it's going to grow and become something that you don't want it to be. In fact, I read this in a book years ago. It's a leadership principle. And it said this, most things in your life that you want success, we all have things in our life, these things we want to accomplish, We've got these accomplishments. Most of these accomplishments accomplishments will not be the result of your big dreams. They'll be the result of the small decisions you make day after day. I'm going to take that idea just a little bit further. See, I love seeing people who are passionate for God. I love seeing people who are on fire. God, I want to do big things for you. God, I want to make a difference in our kingdom. I want a difference in our city. God, I want you to use me and do big things. Listen, I love hearing people like that. But I'll tell you what, it's not just enough hearing people have that big vision. Because that dream, that passion, that desire to do big things for God, if it does not affect their relationships, then your intentions will never become a reality. You want to be faithful to God? You've got to let people around you know, hey, I want to finish my race strong. I want to stay faithful to the end. It's not the big dreams that we dream that determine our future. It's the friendships we choose in the present. The people that we allow around us to encourage us, to love us, to support us, to point us back to the big picture. One of the things we say here at Restoration Church is we are a church, a family that belongs together. That as a church, we, we desire to be family, to support one another, to love one another, to, to finish the race well together. And for someone today, this is your invitation. This is your invitation to be a part of the people of God. Not perfect, but be a part of people who are saying, hey, let's finish the race well together. Let's look out for one another. Let's encourage one another. Let's run the race together so we make it to the end together.
Some of you, you've, you put the wrong people around you. Maybe this is a day to say, you know what? I need to lean into church and not just be an attender, not just be someone who shows up on Sunday morning, but I got to lean into it, to the community and to the people. Last thing, if we're going to finish the race well, you need more than wisdom. You need a savior. I mean, Solomon shows us that we needed more than just wisdom. In fact, sometimes what happens when we read the, the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we look at the Bible characters and we look and say, hey, we look at David and be like, be like David, be brave, go conquer your Goliaths. We look at, we look at people like, like, like Gideon. Oh, have, have the faith of Gideon. Go be like Gideon, have tremendous faith. We look at people like Samson. Be strong like Samson. We look at people like Solomon. We need to be wise and successful like Solomon. But you know what I read from Solomon's story? Solomon had more wisdom in his head than all of us in this room put together. The problem wasn't what was in his head. The problem was right here, in his heart. He had all the wisdom. He had all of it up here. But the problem was in his heart, that his heart had turned away from God. You see, wisdom and the wisdom of God and the will of God is kind of like railroad tracks. Railroad tracks, they tell you where to go. They, they send you on the direction. The wisdom itself can't push you along the tracks. Wisdom itself can't lead you down that railroad track. It's powerless to move us along. And so I think, about, I think about God coming to Solomon that day and saying, Solomon, what is it you want? God, Solomon, what do you want? What do you need to be successful to live for me? Solomon says, I need wisdom. And it wasn't enough to keep his life on the tracks. And many of us in here, many of us listening, we're like, God, if I just had this, I mean, if God were to come to you and say, what is the one thing you need? We have all sorts of answers. God, if I just had this, then I'd be able to live faithfully for you. I'd stay dedicated to you. I'd be happy to serve you. You know, God, if I just had a little bit more wisdom, then God, then I'd be free to serve you. God, if I just, if I just had a little bit more money, if I just had a little bit more money, God, then I'd be free to serve you and be faithful to you. God, if I, just, if I just had a spouse, God, if I just had a better spouse, God, if you would just give us kids, God, if you would just give me a better job, God, if you would just help me to lose weight, God, if you would just help me to get rid of this mental health struggle, God, if I could just have this, then I'd be free and I'd serve you and I'd be faithful to you. All the wisdom of the world did not ultimately matter to Samson. And why? Because the story of Samson is not telling us to be wise. Samson, Solomon. The story of Solomon is not telling us to be wise like Solomon. The story of Solomon is telling us that he needed something more than wisdom. No, he needed someone greater than wisdom. And there's going to be one who's going to come after Solomon. His name is Jesus. And he is a source of all wisdom. Wisdom is found in him. Yet his life, the point of his life was not to be someone who teaches wise sayings. No, the point of his life was to die for sinners. He came not to teach, but to save 
He suffered for our foolishness so that we could be forgiven, so that he could put his spirit in us, not just so we would understand the wise thing, but he would give us the desire to actually do it. See, this is where, church, I love you. I love the chance to be your pastor, to be in your life. And I tell you what, I look at us and I'm like, I love what God's doing here. I'm excited to see what the future holds for us. What I don't want is I don't want any of us to end up like Solomon. People who somehow started out good, started strong, had all the potential, somehow went off the rails to not finish their race, to drop the ball, to lose their first love. Now, church, I want to run, run this race together. I want to see all that God can do through us. That we would say like the Apostle Paul that we have fought the good fight. We have finished the race and we have kept the faith. And that's the story of Solomon for us this morning. We don't just need wisdom or a relationship or a job. We need a savior. Let's pray.